1: Christ's coming, and a prayer. That's next as we continue our survey of Luke here on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner. Join us. You know, oftentimes we get the idea that God is in heaven wringing his hands, worrying whether or not You should answer your prayer or mine, when the opposite is true, as we'll see today on Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. We're in Luke chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, in a message called Christ's Coming and Prayer. Will Christ find faith on the earth when he returns, or will he find a bunch of ineffective prayers who really don't believe God is willing to answer? Well, that's the question we hope to answer for you over the next couple of programs. Please join us. Here's Pastor Gary Wagner with today's broadcast of Abounding Grace.
0: Christ coming and prayer. The last sentence of our text today, When the Son of Man comes, will he really find faith on the earth? links this text to the preceding chapters. Because in those preceding chapters, Christ is talking about His coming. And then in chapter 18, verses 1 through 8, you have the parable of the unjust judge that deals with prayer. And as we have seen already in verses 9 through 14, you have the parable of the Pharisee and the publican that describes the attitude we should have when we do pray If we're going to please God. Now, one thing I would have you notice as we look at this parable is that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, and remember that is the journey that he is on as far as the last leg of his ministry, but the closer he gets to Jerusalem and the cross, the more his thoughts turn not only to the climax of his ministry and his death on the cross. But to the consequences of that death, which were his ascension to God's right hand and his intervention into history to destroy the enemies of his people and to protect and exalt his earth, beginning with the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70. Now, this is an unusual parable. It is called a parable of contrast. That is, certain features are portrayed that are in sharp contrast with other features so as to set forth as vividly as possible the main part of this parable. For example, the relationship of God to His faithful people is contrasted with the relationship of the unjust judge with the widow, and the character of the judge is contrasted with the character of Almighty God. Now, what's this story of the parable? Well, first you have a wicked and unjust judge who stands in stark contrast to God. The judge has no respect for God, no respect for His commandments. He pays no attention to public opinion. He pays no attention to the needs of the people and pays absolutely no attention to the administration of justice. Sounds like a few of our leaders today, doesn't it? On the other hand, our Father in heaven is perfectly wise. He's holy, righteous, just in everything that He does, and is generally concerned for the needs and well-being of those who cry out to Him in believing prayer. Next, you have a desperate widow. Widows in Israel were often mistreated and neglected, as the prophets in the Old Testament point out, time after time. This widow has no one to represent, defend, and support her against her adversary who was seeking to take advantage of her. As one commentator said, she is a picture of vulnerability. Because she apparently... Couldn't afford a lawyer, or probably couldn't find an honest one. Kevin, present company, accepted. (laughs) To take her case, she goes directly to the judge and asks him to be her lawyer, her judge, and her defender. She begs him to protect her against her adversary and to rectify the injustice committed against her. She's not seeking vengeance on her adversary. She is seeking relief from oppression and protection from the court. Although the wicked judge is heartless and unjust, he finally decides to take her case and vindicate her cause. But it is not because he has changed his attitude and has all of a sudden become a nice, just judge. Judge. But because he's afraid that if he doesn't help her, she's going to continue to bother him and wear him down and deprive him of his peace and his comfort, so he pleads her case. Now, what is the point of the parable? Jesus says in verse 6 Listen to what the unrighteous judge said. In other words, here is the point. Pay careful attention to the judge's words in verses 4 and 5 if you want to understand the point of my parable. He said, Even though I do not fear God nor respect man, yet because this widow bothers me, I will give her legal protection unless by continuing to come she wears me out. So what you might say Jesus is doing is contrasting the worst in man with the best in God, Christ is saying, in effect, this is what the unjust judge says and does. Now, what do you think God does to His chosen people who cry out to Him to come to their defense and vindicate them against their evil adversaries? Well, He says in verse 7 through 8, Now shall not God bring about justice for His elect who cry out to Him day and night and Will He delay long over them? I tell you, He will bring about justice for them speedily. Now, what is God telling us here? He's giving us assurance, assurance to His hearers of the unfailing protection of God to His people in the midst of a life full of evil and danger. If this unjust... Cruel judge grants a request of this bothersome widow in whom he has no interest, how much more will our heavenly Father, who is perfect and loving and righteous, cause justice to be done to His chosen people? That is the point. Although Jesus, coming to Jerusalem 30 years after His resurrection from the grave to defeat the apostates and Jewish persecutors of the church and to commence the global storming of the kingdom by people longing to enter in, might seem to be delayed. Christ's disciples must not become discouraged, but should persist in prayer, knowing that God will indeed come at the right time and will answer all of their prayers by destroying their enemies and causing His chosen people to triumph. What does the very first verse say? Now, He was telling them a parable to show that at all times they ought to pray and not lose heart. Now, notice how He applies the parable in the last part of verse 8. After assuring the disciples of the certainty of answered prayers for justice and deliverance from our enemy, Jesus asks this rhetorical question. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Now, that statement is used by rapturists in an attempt to refute our postmillennialism. That's one of their favorite verses to use against us, and here's how they use it against us. They say that according to the Greek syntax, this sentence requires a negative answer. It is said there are various Greek ways of asking questions, and this question is asked in such a way to facilitate a negative response. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find faith on earth? Suggests a negative answer, they say. They also point out rightly that there is a V in the front of faith. However, when the Son of Man comes, will He find the faith once revealed to the people of God? And the answer is no, they say. The point being that in the end times before the rapture, the world will be void of the truth of the true faith of the Word of God rather than a time of gospel prosperity. So how can you believe? that just before the end of time the world is going to be converted and everything is going to be wonderful when the question demands a negative answer. No, the Christian faith will be gone. That's what the rapturists tell us. Well, if that's what it means, you and I must become premillennialists. But I want you to see that it cannot mean what the rapturists say it means. First of all, as we have seen in our previous exegesis, Jesus is not dealing with the future existence of Christianity at the end times. Jesus says, as He begins this parable in verse 1, that He is dealing with fervent, persevering prayer, And they are correct when they say that that there is a the before faith, the faith. But it is to refer us to the faith in the prayer illustrated in the persevering prayers of the widow and in her persistence. This is the kind of faith, this faith, the faith of this persevering widow. It is this kind of faith, this kind of praying believer Will it be gone or will it continue after Jesus is gone? In other words, will his disciples keep persevering in prayer and in the hope of the Lord's coming? That is, his continued intervention into history beginning with the fall of Jerusalem. The second thing I should point out is that Jesus' question was not for the purpose of speculation, but for self-examination. Jesus wasn't asking them to speculate about the future. Will there be in the future? He wanted them to examine themselves. Are you going to be faithful in persevering prayer? God says, I'm going to be faithful in answering prayer, but are you going to be faithful in begging me for justice and vindication? The fact is, the Greek syntax does not assume a negative answer. And the people who say it does are dead wrong, beloved. There is a way of asking a question in Greek that assumes a negative answer, And there is a way of asking a question that assumes a positive answer. And there is a way of asking a question that is ambiguous. And the one in our text is the last. And the reason it is the last is because the purpose is to get these disciples to look deeply down into their own hearts. Third, from the context, as I have shown in several previous sermons, Jesus is referring to His imminent coming in judgment to Jerusalem to destroy it in A.D. 70, rather than His distant second coming at the end of the world. Notice in the first part of verse 8 of chapter 18, Jesus says, I tell you that He will bring about justice for them speedily. Now, let me remind you How the book of Revelation begins in chapter 1, verse 1. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave Him to show to His bondservants things which must shortly take place. So what Jesus is doing here is urging His disciples to be persevering in prayer through the tribulation that is about to come upon them in connection with the fall of Jerusalem, Which Jesus says in Matthew 24 34 is going to take place in the first century generation. When he says, I say to you, this generation will not pass away until all of these things take place. And he is not talking about the second coming. With Jesus' question, he is not seeking information, he is not asking for their opinion. When, Jesus, when Christ comes, will there be faith found on the earth? He's not asking for information, nor is he giving information. He is not talking about any new prophecy. Benjamin Warfield said this, His object is neither to elicit nor to communicate information. It is to rouse effect. He wishes to encourage his disciples to preserve that attitude of confident trust in God, which is the purpose of the parable to indicate he so, he so to speak, in this first question, puts it to the disciples whether the faith of which he speaks shall be a permanent fact in the world. God's ears are ever open to the cries of his people. He is faithful, are they? are we? On their part, equally to be depended upon, if God is not like the unjust judge, are the disciples like the persevering widow, or will they like she did not fell in their cries? He continues the design of the question is thus to incite the disciples to the to the preservation of the attitude of confident trust in God, which is the object of the parable. To command. So when he says, when Christ comes, will he find faith on earth? He's talking about the coming of Christ to Jerusalem in 70 AD. He's not asking for information, he's not prophesying. He wants them to examine themselves. Are you going to be faithful to cry out to me in these troubling times which are about to come upon you? Because I'm going to be faithful to your cries and I'm going to answer them and vindicate you and deliver you from your enemies. Now, what is the content of the cries of God's people? Ultimately, the prayers of God's people must be that God would deliver us from all our adversaries who would seek to draw us away from Him, who seek to destroy our faith, defeat Christ's kingdom, frustrate the saving purposes of God for His creation, and drag God's people and His creation to hell. And this is not the only petition we bring to God in prayer. But all of the other petitions are subservient to this one. Deliver us from the evil one. Now as we go on, we're going to see that the prayers He's talking about that is, that's if we are persistent in crying out to God with these petitions, God will be faithful speedily, are not the kind of prayers most people pray today in our churches. Most prayers that people pray today in church are concerned with their own personal needs, their own comfort, their their own health, their pains, challenges that they may face. That's not the kind of prayer he is talking about here. There's nothing wrong, of course, with praying and asking God for these various things, but they all must be subservient, that is, connected to and focused on this one central request of our hearts, which is that God would display justice on behalf of his people in this wicked world, and vindicate us in the face of our enemies. All these other personal requests should have that as their ultimate focus and ultimate goal. Now, this implies several things. First of all, it implies the church must pray earnestly for the public, historical, complete, and final vindication of her cause in this world. Today, the church is mocked and ridiculed, and her cause is scorned as absurd and bigoted. The church must pray that God will cause her to have status, and that her mission in this world is to appear before all as just and righteous and true, that she might be a praise in this world, my friends. Second, the church must pray for protection from all of her enemies. Have you ever noticed how many of the psalms are prayers for protection? This wicked world makes every attempt to rob the church of her place in history and to silence her witness. So she must pray earnestly that God would protect her here and preserve her cause. Third, the church must pray for the restoration of what is rightfully hers. Today she doesn't really even know what is rightfully hers. So you hardly ever hear anyone pray for God to give back to the church by covenantal right what the world has taken from her. And what are some of the things she must pray to be restored to her? Independence from the state. Protection by the state of the righteous freedom and education for her children, the promised possession of this earth and all that it contains. And fourth, the church must pray for the punishment of her adversaries. The blood of her martyrs cry out for vengeance. Those killed for the Lord plead for justice. Learn, beloved, to pray the imprecatory psalms and other passages of Scripture that call for God's wrath on the wicked. Turn with me, if you will, to Psalm 58. We need to learn to pray psalms like this. Psalm 58, beginning in verse 6, concerning our adversaries. O God, shatter their teeth in their mouth. Break out the fangs of the young lions, O Lord. Let them flow away like water that runs off. When he aims his arrows, let them be as headless shafts. Let them be as a snail that melts away as it goes along, like the miscarriage of a woman which never sees the sun. Before your pots can feel the fire of storms, he will sweep them away with a whirlwind, the green and the burning alike. The righteous Will rejoice when he sees the vengeance. He will wash his feet in the blood of the wicked, and men will say, Surely there is a reward for the righteous. Surely he is a God who judges in the earth. I doubt today there are many sermons on the 10th and the 11th verses of Psalm 58. Because Christians do not know how to pray for justice. And to pray for the vindication of the church and the defeat of the church's enemies. There are a multitude of psalms like this, beloved. Turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation, New Testament, and you'll see a similar prayer. Learn to pray these prayers. God says He answers these prayers. Revelation 8, 1 through 5. And when he broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about a half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who stood before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Then another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him that he might add it to the prayers of the saints upon the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayer of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. And the angel took the censer and he filled it with the fire of the altar. And he threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Well, incense is a symbol of prayer. And as the aroma ascends into the heavens, it's a symbol of prayer ascending into the nostrils of God. And this passage says that when these prayers ascend to the nostrils of God, God casts fire upon the earth. And then beginning with verse 6 and going to the end of the chapter, it eventuates in the destruction of all the enemies of God. But it is prayer that calls down this fire, beloved. Our prayers play a central role in the defeat of evil in our culture as we pray for justice and for the vindication of God's people.
1: Well, that's all the time we have today. This has been Abounding Grace with Pastor Gary Wagner from Reformed Heritage Church in San Jose. If you'd like to review today's broadcast, we would invite you to contact us for a copy of the program. They're available for just $5. Mention today's date and we'll send a CD your way. May Christ be your abounding grace.